I went to school in Cincinnati, Ohio in the early 80s, and uh, that, it wasn't, I wasn't in the city very long before I made my very first trip to Skyline, Chile. Now, those of you, yes, thank you, the testimony right there. I hear you, brother. Uh, yeah, now, here's the thing. Cincinnati, Chile is different, right? And so it's kind of an institution, and Skyline seems to have kind of perfected that. If you're Gold Star people, I'm sorry. You have just followed a, a dark path. But in Cincinnati, it was, it was kind of a thing for the college where I went that you would go to this one Skyline. And so some guys on my floor, just a few weeks in, said, hey, we're going to Sky. That's what they call it. They didn't even say Skyline. They said, we're going to Sky. Like, I should know what that means. I go, I hope to go into the skies when Jesus returns someday too, but I don't know. What are you talking about? They go, we're going to a place called Skyline. And this guy said, you want to go with us? And I said, sure, because I was trying to get to know the guys. And so we're on our way there, and this guy's trying to explain Skyline to me. You know, it's different. It's like Chile, but it's way different. And I said, okay. And he said, when you get there, you got to try a three-way, okay? And that's what this is, right? Anybody hungry now? <laughs> I know I am. Yeah. So here's the deal. I get there, and I try it, and I'm like, who thought this was a good idea, right? I mean, spaghetti, I, I married an Italian woman. Spaghetti has its place, Right? <laughs> But you don't put chili on it, and this chili isn't like chili. I mean, you got to order beans if you want beans in your chili. And I, I, was, I was sitting there thinking, what, is, what was going through their mind when they made this combination? But I, I will tell you that it didn't take me but just a few weeks to acquire a taste, and now I've had a 40-plus year love affair with the three-way, <laughs> okay? And uh, I've, I'm enjoying that. But it wasn't that way when I first started. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about how Skyline is not the only unconventional, you know, pairing of dining delicacies. Think about it. Who thought initially of putting fried chicken on a waffle? Right? Anybody in here a fan? Yeah, I, I love that. But I, my first time I heard about it, I thought, that is just weird, right? Or there's the person who thought, let's put cheddar cheese on apple pie. Yeah, and that's weird, right? And now if you like that, maybe that's a southern thing. I just have not acquired a taste for it, right? Or pickles and peanut butter. Yeah, some of you are going, where did you, who are these people, right? Now, here's my theory about that one. Because pickles are involved, I think there was probably a pregnant woman in the middle of the night, and she said, you know what sounds good? And her husband said, I'll go get it, you know. But, yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit out there, right? Okay, now this one, little umbrella of mercy, all of you out there, but pineapple on pizza. Yeah, now, some, see, I knew, I knew there was a whole, there's like 40% of the culture that says that's a beautiful idea, but here's what I'm thinking. You don't put fruit on a pizza, right? Pepperoni, yes, fruit, no, okay? Okay, but here's the last one. I did a little bit of research. These were things that I, I knew about, but this one I never heard of before, okay? And it's watermelon with yellow mustard on it. Yeah, I think that's disgusting, right? But apparently there are people who go, yeah, that's the way I like to eat my watermelon. Yeah. 
Somehow, at some point in history, someone ate these unconventional pairings together and discovered, at least to their palate, they tasted good, right? Several years ago, I was doing some thinking about some, some sermons and, and lessons and things, and I came to realize that so many of the things that we read about in the Bible that God has done in my mindset, seemed unconventional. Follow follow me just for a minute. Think about it. Daniel, God allows his prophet Daniel to go into a cave or what they called a den that was filled with hungry lions. And yet God's solution was to send an angel to close the mouths of the lions. Daniel spent the whole night in there with these lions who couldn't open their mouths. There's another story of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and God sends every morning, he sends manna, that was bread from heaven. He sent it every morning for 40 years, with the exception of on the Sabbath. And that's how the people ate for 40 years, not conventional. My favorite story of the Old Testament is the parting of the Red Sea. God took the Red Sea and he parted it, and the Israelites crossed through it on dry land, escaping the Egyptian army. That is completely unconventional. But probably one of the most interesting examples of how God is unconventional was the day that Balaam had a conversation with his donkey. Now, if you've never heard of this before, you look it up in Numbers, the 22nd chapter. It's about midway through that chapter, and you read it. You should read it, because it's interesting. Balaam wants to go somewhere, but God doesn't think that's a good idea, and so he puts an angel out front, and Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can. And so he keeps whipping the donkey to make it go, but the donkey would rather take a beating than go into the presence of this angel who's got a sword. And so finally, the, the donkey starts talking to Balaam like, do you not understand, you know? It's a, but not conventional, right? Not conventional. The Bible is full of these unconventional works of God. And what we're gonna see in this study today is that God has his ways of getting things done, even if they seem unconventional to us. So if you have a Bible or you want to use your phone or tablet, turn to Ezra, the fifth chapter. We're going to look at starting with verse 1. So the rebuilding of the, uh, the temple has been going on. But I want to give you a little bit of background before what has been happening before we get to Ezra chapter 5. A hundred years before, God has warned his people in the land of Judah through the prophets of God to repent, but the people refused. And so God sent a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar to discipline his people. Nebuchadnezzar conquered the people. He deported the Jews to Babylon, and he looted and destroyed the city of Jerusalem as well as he leveled the temple. The people were in exile for 70 years when God sent Cyrus, king of Persia, to overthrow the Babylonians. And God used Cyrus, a pagan king, to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to restore worship of God in the city of Jerusalem. They first built the temple. They first, before building the temple, they built the altar 
of God and began offering sacrifices, and then they began building the temple. But the people living nearby did not want them there. They certainly didn't want them rebuilding any part of the city, nor did they want them rebuilding the temple of God. So they set out to try to stop the construction. As Philip shared last week in Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read this. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So now what we have, Satan is trying to lie to the people around Judah. He's trying to convince the people living in the region to do everything possible to discourage the Jews from fulfilling their task that God called them to, to rebuild the temple. They even hired counselors to influence those who were building, who were the local officials to try to stop the building, and eventually they're successful. From 536 to 530 BC, the work on the temple had progressed. They got the foundation laid, and they started building the walls. But in 430, the progress complete, came to a complete stop. The project was shut down, not because the king had issued an edict stopping it, but because the people were discouraged and afraid. So the building of the temple had stalled, and the people started focusing on their own lives, their own homes, building their own Houses, and they neglected the rebuilding of the temple for 10 years. But then God had a plan. And here's a key point for us today. God has his ways of getting things done. God has his ways of getting things done. And we see initially this in verses 1 and 2 of Ezra chapter 5. Let me read this for us. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. In essence, the prophets came and preached, say, hey, we got to get back to work. And so the leadership, Zerubbabel and Joshua, set to work organizing the rebuilding of the temple. And then the prophets, they didn't abandon, they stayed there and they continued to support the effort. God has his ways of getting things done. And first we notice that he uses conventional methods to accomplish his purposes, his plans. And one of those methods is God uses preachers. That's what he did. He used preachers. Preachers have been doing God's bidding throughout history. And when God calls a person to preach and they follow the Lord's leading, God will speak through them. God will use them. He will work through them. Warren Wiersbe, who's one of the anchor resources that I've used for this series, he writes, Church history shows that when God wants to arouse his people to do his will, he calls people to proclaim the word of the Lord. Never underestimate 
the power of faithful preaching. Haggai and Zechariah delivered God's message to the leaders and to the remnant that it was time to get back to the work of rebuilding the temple. And we read later in Ezra chapter 6, kind of a status report, it says this, the Jewish leaders continue to make progress because of the message from the prophet Haggai and Zechariah. They, they didn't just preach one time. It sounds like they're continuing this series of messages about rebuilding the temple. Any work done by God, if it isn't built on the word of God, will never prosper. If we want to know the power of God, then we must know the word of God. God used the conventional method of sending these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to inspire the Jews with the word of God in order to rebuild the temple. And that's what restarted the rebuilding. Pretty conventional. Not uncommon that God would raise up a preacher to go in and to preach the word of God. But there's a second method that God uses. God uses unconventional methods to accomplish his purposes. Now, when we think about God working, as I mentioned earlier, we recognize that sometimes he uses unconventional methods. At least to us, they're unconventional. Maybe to him, it's just normal, right? But we see a couple of examples here of how God used unconventional methods to accomplish his purposes. The first is this. God used local officials. Now, what's important to note is these are not believers. These are not followers of Jesus. These are, these are pagan overseers. These are people who are part of the Persian Empire. Ezra tells us that the governor of Trans-Euphrates was a man by the name of Tatanai. And he, he was over the entire region west of the Euphrates River, which included Syria and Palestine. And in Palestine, there is this province, we know it as the nation of Judah, but it was in the, Palestine, or in the, uh, in the uh, Persian Empire, it was a province known as Judah. Tatanai is concerned about what the Jews are doing in Jerusalem. It's his responsibility to be concerned. It was his responsibility to protect the interests of the current king, King Darius. He had looked out for the welfare of this portion of his region of oversight. He also had the responsibility to maintain peace and security in this region. So when the Jews start rebuilding the temple, Tatanai takes notice. He gets word and he checks it out. He asks two questions. The first is this, who authorized you to build this temple and to finish it? And then the second question is, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? He's just trying to gather the facts. What's this all about? You see, the governor has to do his job. And to do that, he wants to find out what this is all about. The Jews didn't consider the Persian governor, Tatanai, a troublemaker. Not that he was, he was creating waves for them, but instead, they graciously answered his questions. After all, they had nothing to hide. They were doing what God had called them to do. And they believed, they knew that God was with them in this effort. What's interesting to me is the Jews illustrate 
a really important truth here. Think about it. They're still in occupied territory. The Persians are over this whole area. The people around them had successfully stopped the building of the temple for 10 years. But the prophets rekindled this, and they come back now, and they're building the temple. And they are going to continue to do it. But then when the questions from the governor come, they could have panicked. But they had nothing to hide. Which illustrates a really important truth. Life is less complicated when you obey God. See, they were right in that lane, even though there was all kinds of reasons around them that could have created pressure and problems for them, but they were in the lane that God had called them to be in. Life is less complicated when you and I obey God. Now, here's the one thing important to note. I didn't say it would be easier. It's just less complicated because you know what you know you're supposed to do because you're right where God has called you. See, God saw to it that this work was allowed to happen, even though the governor was checking all of these things out. In fact, the governor is going to send a letter to the king, King King Darius, to find out how to proceed. I mean, here's what's going on. What should I do? One of the things that concerned Tat and I was the structure of the temple itself. You know, as he does this little inventory and and analyzes what's going on, he notices that they're building with these large stones and the walls had these huge timbers in them. And to the governor, it looked more like a fortress than it looked like a sanctuary. Also, the building was progressing extremely rapidly. That made him think that Maybe these Jews are getting ready to revolt against me. But the Jews knew their history. They told the governor very quickly what their history was, how God had built this temple through the great King Solomon, and then how the temple was destroyed. They explained how Nebuchadnezzar came and exiled the Jews to Babylon, and for 70 years, that's where they were. And then Cyrus, the king of Persia, came and gave them permission to return to their homeland. And rebuild the temple. And King Cyrus not only did that, but he gave them the temple treasures so that the ministry could be reestablished according to what the law of Moses said. And the facts, they're all there. In fact, they knew that Cyrus had written it down. The king's secretaries could just go and check the archives. And they could see that the Jews were telling the truth. So Tadani sends a letter to King Darius, and this is what he asked. In verse 17, he says, Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. So the work had stopped for 10 years, but now it's back on. And they're rebuilding. The local governor gets kind of a little bit squirrely, a little bit concerned, so he checks into it. But he has no knowledge of what happened 10 years earlier. He had no understanding of King Cyrus's proclamation saying, you can go and build this, and officially sanctioned the rebuilding of the temple. The governor, who's just doing his job, does all of this work to gather all these facts, and then he reports back to King Darius seeking guidance. 
And it's probable, most likely, that King Darius has no knowledge of the decree that was issued by Cyrus years before either. This is just another example of God's unconventional method of enlisting local officials to pave the way for what God wants to accomplish. You see, what, what Tatanai does opens the gate for what's going to happen next, which is even more unconventional of a method. And that is that God used the pagan king, King Darius. And he uses him in a powerful way. Now, this is not the first time we've seen God use a pagan king to do his bidding. First, there's Nebuchadnezzar who comes in and brings judgment on the people of God, and God orchestrated that. And then there's King Cyrus, the Persian king, the the leader of the Persian empire, and he overthrows Nebuchadnezzar and makes it possible for the people to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And now you have King Darius, King Darius who's going to do far more than Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus even did. You see, the royal secretaries do a search of the archives, and they find the scroll that Cyrus had written that was left by him, which contained the edict that granted the return of the Jews to their homeland. It also authorized the Jews the authority to rebuild the temple. King Darius affirms Cyrus's decree. Sounds good to me. And then he goes several steps further to actually enhance this edict. He gives six enhancements we see in the next few verses that made the original decree even stronger, even more effective for what the Jews are trying to accomplish. The first edict is found in verse 6. It says this, Now the Tatanai governor of Trans-Euphrates and Shethar Bozani and you other officials of the province stay away from there. This is from the letter from King Darius. He says, you all in leadership, stay away from their work site. You see, stay away from their work site. God is using the pagan king to provide security for his people. Leave these Jews alone. Well, the second enhancement is found in in verse 7. It's very similar to the first. He says, do not interfere with the work on the temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on this site. It's as if he's saying, hey, if you didn't hear me before, I'm going to say it again. And he says it in a really interesting way. The first phrase in that verse 7 says, do not interfere with the work on this temple of God, which is actually literally written, keep your distance. So if you didn't hear him the first time, he's saying it again. Stay away from their work site. He says it in a different way, but we know that in ancient literature, when someone repeats something, they do it for emphasis. So the first enhancement is stay away from their work site, and the second one is keep your distance, or stay away from their work site. Everybody capiche? All right. Then the third thing he says, there's a third enhancement there in verse 7. He says, let them rebuild their temple. You stay away, but don't from a distance impede what they're doing. Let them rebuild their temple. Then we find in verse 8, the fourth enhancement. It says this, moreover, 
I hereby decree that you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house, this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Now, this gets really interesting to me. He's saying, out of your budget, Tatanai, cover the expenses. We're not just creating safety for them to build this place. We're going to finance it. We're going to underwrite the costs. Darius makes it crystal clear that Tatanai is to pay out of his budget for this project so that the work does not stop. Because it's possible that they could be doing their work completely left alone, but they run out of resources. And King Darius is saying, we're not going to let that happen. That brings us to the fifth enhancement. It's found in verses 9 and 10. It says this, whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and, take note, pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Darius has a sense. Just pause for one second. He has a sense. These people have a connection with the God of the universe. Now, he doesn't know this God. But he thinks, he has a sense that they do. So he says, we're going to provide for them whatever they need daily. It's one thing to underwrite the cost of the financing of their project, but now he's saying, hey, whatever they need so that they can, they can offer sacrifices as well as pray for the king and his sons. Give them what they need. This king, a lot like the Persian king Cyrus, seems to value what these Jews are all about. The last enhancement is found in verses 11 and 12. It says this. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. The last enhancement is this. Make it known. Defy this edict, and you will pay dearly. You will pay dearly. Neither the local Persian officials nor the people of the land were to interfere with the rebuilding of the temple. But instead, they were to do everything within their power to support this work. What stands out to me is that King Darius writes more like a prophet of God than a pagan king of Persia. Now, why is that? It's because God has his ways of getting things done. God's at work through King Darius, a pagan king. Sometimes what God does is conventional and sometimes it's unconventional, but he always gets things done. Whatever 
whatever started out as an investigation by Tatani, the governor, ends up being a royal decree that protects the Jews and provides what they needed to finish their work. And most of it was done by people who didn't believe or follow God. God has his ways of getting things done. You might find yourself facing an insurmountable challenge, but if you are faithful, if you are with God, trust him. God has ways of getting things done. You know, throughout this series that we've titled Reclaim, we've been talking about things that we've recognized that need to be reclaimed. Things that have been damaged in the past or slowed down or broken or some of them have been completely shut down. Things like Bible reading that we started this, back in this past January or community which we emphasized last month. And then through this series, we've taken steps to focus on reclaiming prayer which has been in decline. And we focus that on our city. Our city needs help. Our city needs help. And you may think that things have gotten so bad that it's never going to come back to the way it was, or even close to that. But God, God is big enough to fix what is broken. God has his ways of getting things done. We believe Jesus is the answer for what this city needs. And God can get that message out. Prayer might seem an unconventional way to address the issues Lexington faces. In fact, you might think it seems like you're taking the easy way out, like you're not willing to get your hands dirty. But the truth is, is that every movement of God starts with prayer. Now, it will lead people to getting involved in getting their hands dirty, if you will, but we need to recognize that prayer, though it may seem unconventional as a solution, that God answers prayers of his people. Amen. James says in James 4, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who, excuse me, who knocks... The door will be open. So ask God to move in faith and trust God that he's going to get things done. Prayer may seem like an unconventional method of solving the problems of our, that our city faces until you truly realize the authority that God has. There's a word. It's sovereign. God is sovereign. That's not a word we use a lot. The word sovereign means preeminent, power and authority. God has preeminent power and authority. And that word preeminent means unsurpassed. There's nobody ahead of him. There's no one over him. He's the top. He is the, he is the gold standard of power and authority. He is sovereign over all he has created. God has this unsurpassed power and authority. God hears everything, including our prayers. Nothing gets by him. And when we pray, God tells us through Jeremiah 33, 3, he says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Jeremiah gives us two key, 
truths about prayer. There's a lot in that verse, but there's two things that jumped out at me. First of all is this. God wants us to pray. He says, call to me. He's listening. And then the second thing he says is, God will answer our prayers. He says, I will answer you. Call to me and I will answer you. And because of these things being true, we can pray with confidence that God hears and answers our prayers. Now, here's the disclaimer in that. God doesn't always answer your prayers the way you want him to answer them. But that caveat, I find great solace in the words of the prophet Isaiah when he says, in Isaiah 55, 9, he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So if you think about it, you pray, and you're asking God to do this, but God's thoughts and his ways are higher than yours. They're higher than mine. So when he answers our prayers, we should assume that his answer will be better than our requests. Let me close with this. George Mueller is arguably one of my favorite God leaders of the past. George Mueller was a remarkable man of God, a man of deep faith, and I'm always honored when I get to share a part of his story. If it were up to me, I would talk about him a lot more than I do. George Mueller gladly dedicated his, as one biographer said, his whole life to the object of exemplifying how much may be accomplished by prayer and faith, period. When he moved to Bristol, England in 1832 to serve a church, he and his wife decided not to take a salary from the congregation. Don't get any ideas, all right? <laughs> they wanted to daily depend on the Lord for their needs, and they accepted only unsolicited free will offerings. George Mueller's journal is jammed full of amazing stories of how God responded and directed resources to them through his 66 years of ministry. Here's just one example. When George moved to Bristol, it wasn't long after that that he started an orphanage to care for orphans in the Bristol, England area. And on one evening, all the children had eaten dinner and were ready for bed. They always felt loved in that orphanage. They always felt cared for. But little did they know that the orphanage had no money and there was no food for breakfast the next day. And though they did not know how, George Mueller was confident the Lord would provide for these orphans. After all, God is the father to the fatherless, Psalm 68 says. So Mueller went to bed committing the orphans to God's care. And the next morning he went for a walk praying that God would provide and supply the needs of the orphanage. And on that walk, he was greeted by a friend who asked him to accept some money for the orphanage. Just on perfect timing. Mueller thanked him but did not tell the friend about the pressing need. Instead, he praised God all the way home for answered prayer and then went to the orphanage where they eventually had breakfast. George Mueller had a remarkable faith that God had everything under control. That God, he has ways of getting things done. And it played out. 
in his life on a regular, consistent basis because that's how he prayed. He prayed with faith, confident that God, whether using conventional or unconventional methods, was going to accomplish the purposes that he had called George Mueller and his wife to Bristol to accomplish. He trusted God completely for his needs as well as the needs of these orphans. And history tells us that he didn't ask anyone for support for their ministry, only God. Pretty unconventional, if you ask me. And yet, God is sovereign. And George knew that. And so George prayed, and he trusted God would answer his prayers, and you know, God did. During this series, we've been focusing on reclaiming prayer. Oh, for us to be people of faith in prayer like George Mueller. But in order for us to reclaim prayer, we're taking this first step of reclaiming prayer for Northeast by joining this unceasing prayer for Lexington movement. Currently, there's 19 churches involved in this who are praying one day a month to pray for our city. And we're gonna cover our city by praying for 24 hours on the second Thursday of every month for one year. We plan to cover that 24 hours by praying in 15-minute periods. We've divided the 24 hours up into 96 15-minute increments, and to this point, all 96 time slots are covered. There's 143 people who said, I'm gonna pray, signed up. Yes, hallelujah for that. The amazing thing to me was it only took two weeks for that to happen. And as awesome as that is, I want you to know there's still room for you, if you haven't signed up yet, to pray because your prayers matter as much as those 143 have already signed up. So I want to encourage you to go to Northeast uh, website, ncclex.org slash prayer and sign up for any time you want because they're all filled now so you can choose any time that works best for you and take 15 minutes and pray asking God to move in our city. And I believe God will answer our prayers in conventional or unconventional ways to change our city, to transform lives who will someday be in heaven because people are praying and people will be stepping into the gap because God has his ways of getting things done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you, recognizing that you truly are the one who has the sovereign authority and power to do what needs to be done. Lord, whether it's conventional or unconventional ways, you get things done. And so we pray today, Lord, because we want to be part of accomplishing your plans. You have done so much for us. You have saved us from our sins, God. You have provided for us in this work. You have been faithful every step of the way, opening doors, providing provisions, resources. God, we want to be your hands and feet in this effort. So, God, we pray that more and more will pray, that some will sign up even today to see, God, you at work. God, move in our city. I pray, God, you'll transform lives. 
Jesus, you are the hope of our city. You're what our city needs. Jesus, you're the love that Lexington needs. Jesus, you're the answer for our city. So come, Lord, and move in the hearts and the minds of those in Lexington. Use Northeast to be bright lights of the gospel. Lord, bring the harvest of souls. Bring revival in our city. And Lord, start right here with us. We pray in the name of Jesus.